Welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is the 23rd, Christmas Eve Eve. Is there like a specific day f- name for this? Is it like the... No idea. Well, there's 12 days of Christmas, so it's like the 10th <laughs> day of Christmas or something like that. The British probably have something, right? <laughs> yeah, they have all these weird days around <laughs> so Christmas. So many names. Yeah. I don't, they might not have that many. It might just be Boxing Day, which I think is before. Is it a day after Christmas is Boxing that, Day? I think that's Canadian. I think it's they like, have Boxing Day on it's both. It's Commonwealth, right? I think it is the day after. Yeah, they have oh, some. Th- I only know this because I think they play a ton of soccer games. <laughs> on that day um there's one year i tried to pay attention to english british soccer i totally failed it's just like i, was like, I actually don't care i was like i'm gonna force myself to care about this because i don't watch enough sports and then i just failed i was just like i don't care about this <laughs> um okay well we have a special guest today and i don't know when this episode is going to come out but i imagine it'll come out sometime after christmas uh, her name is Joanne Lum, and we're very excited to have her on. Uh, Tammy, do you, you and Joanne go back pretty pretty far, I think. Is, do you want to introduce her to the to our listeners? Yeah, that sounds great. Welcome, Joanne, to our podcast. Um, Joanne and I go back like almost, I think, 13 years, maybe. Um, when I was lawyering, I had the pleasure of meeting Joanne through the worker center that she leads called NMAS, National Mobilization Against Sweatshops. It's a sister organization to one of the oldest worker centers in the country. And we can get into the, what the concept of a worker center is. Um, but suffice it to say, Joanne is a longtime organizer who does multiracial labor and housing and community organizing in New York City and is just like a hero if you know anything about activism in the city. Um, so we're super excited to have her on. Welcome, Joanne. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know about that hero part. <laughs> also overly modest. Amy calls everyone a hero. Not true. Yeah. We'll have like some journalist on who is like my hero. <laughs> or like a blog. No, journalists yeah. are not our heroes. Someone with like a lot of Twitter followers and Tim is like hero. <laughs> That's not true. You're the first person she has said hero. Well, thank you. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, Tim, like, uh, like what, 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 how do, how do you want to start this conversation? Yeah, there's so much to talk about. Well, Joanne, maybe you could first start by talking about the organizing that you guys have been doing during the pandemic, because we've on this show talked a lot about essential workers and all of the depredations of <laughs> federal and state policy right now that are going on. And I know in particular, you guys have been working with a lot of delivery restaurant workers and home care workers. So maybe you could just give us a lay of the land and then we'll we'll kind of work backwards from there. Sure. So at NMAS, uh, we're a multi-trade, multi-racial organization, as Tammy said. And so uh, during the pandemic, uh, at the beginning of it in March, we were calling a lot of our members just to see what was going on with people. And that's where we learned that a lot of our members were continuing to work because they're home care workers and considered like frontline, you know, healthcare workers, essential workers. And a lot of them were working actually more hours. A lot of them had been doing already 24 hour shifts for days in a row. Uh, but with the pandemic, you're finding that many of their patients and patients' families 
we're not wanting to have so many different shifts of home care workers in and out of the home. And so they were asking some of the home care workers to stay on even longer. Uh, but there were also home care workers who were really nervous about uh, going into work and uh, were fearful because there wasn't much protection given them. For example, the agencies weren't providing them with uh, personal protective equipment like masks and basic things, masks and gloves yeah. and all. And these home care workers, you know, as you probably know, are doing this really uh, close personal care of uh of people who require, you know, someone to often like bathe them, you know, take them to the bathroom, change their pampers, feed them, uh, wa wash their clothes, their bedding, take, you know, help them up, uh, watch them at night if they have Alzheimer's. I mean, they do a lot of things and it's mm -hmm. a lot up close. It's patient care. And so not to have you know, the equipment is crazy uh, when there's this pandemic going on. And so some were scared to go and stop working. And some had to stop working because uh, they had children. And then when the schools uh, shut down and were being, you know, classes were being taught remotely. So a lot of the parents had to stay home and uh, they couldn't go to, uh, to work. Meanwhile, we're also hearing um, among the restaurant workers and uh, nail salon, you know, other the service workers, mm -hmm. a lot were losing losing their jobs. A lot of restaurants were shutting down, particularly early. A lot of the Chinese restaurants were among the first to shut down, and I think it had a lot to do with the racism, you know, that was being uh, kind of uh, uh, spread by uh, the president. And also by a lot of media calling this as the Chinese virus and everything. And so a lot of people were leery of going to a Chinese mm -hmm. restaurant right from the beginning. So a lot of Chinese restaurants shut, but then a lot of others um, as well, as you know. And so a lot of people lost jobs or lost hours. And um, yet a lot of workers like delivery workers continued working too, uh, doing delivery work. And also without much protection from you know, their employers. And so we started assessing like whether we should um, address some of the immediate needs of people at this time. And so we decided, yes, we have to, especially around the health issue. So we started um, raising funds to purchase uh, PPE, especially for home care workers. And, uh, but then we also were organizing workers to put together demands to the government because it really, you know, it's crazy for us to have to do this as small nonprofit workers center. Uh, and so we were uh, circulating a petition addressing our governor Cuomo saying that, you know, during this pandemic, the government really needs to step up and, and help the workers and the small businesses that are suffering. When your organization is, um, the description is that it's an immigrant worker center. What, I mean, are there particular um, groups that you're, that stand out in terms of the, you know, who's in the organization? Are they mostly, are they Asian American or Caribbean American or how, how is this all kind of, you know, communicated and coordinated and organized? Actually, we're not an immigrant. Uh, oh, okay. organization. Uh, we do have uh, a lot of members that are immigrants, 
and they're from, you know, they're from Honduras and Dominican Republic and Mexico and uh, Peru and Chile, like all over, uh, as well as some, um, well, Garifuna, who don't really identify as Latino. Uh, and then uh, we've also had uh, other Afro-Caribbean. And uh, in the past, we've had, like Tammy probably remembers this, we used to have a lot of Polish yeah. uh, members, right? And actually, I have to mention to you, speaking of that, um, because we're a worker center. Oh, uh, just to finish, uh, so uh, we have a lot of immigrant work, uh, worker members, but then we also have a lot of uh, citizen U.S. born, so yeah. African American and others who were born here, like myself, uh, born in this country. Um, but anyway, and the whole idea is that we want to come together. We want to unite people, immigrant and U.S. born. Like really critical for us, actually, because we feel like that's the only way that we're going to be able to get what we all need instead of being uh, uh, divided into different sectors. Um, but I just was going to add that because we're a worker center, like a open, you know, to anybody who identifies as a worker who agrees with this idea that we have to come together to stand up for what we need in the workplace and also where we live. Uh, we have people with all different kinds of beliefs, like mm -hmm. political beliefs, you know, the whole gamut. And so a week ago or so, a member, a former member who hasn't been participating in the last several years, but used to be a leader of NMAS, a uh, leader of one of our campaigns. He dropped by, he was in the neighborhood. And so he came by and I asked him, oh, you know, what are you up to these days? And he said, I'm helping Trump with because of this, all this fraud that happened in oh my the elections. Hmm. And also I'm protesting the masks and the vaccines. No, wait, this he wasn't said, Arik though, was it? Oh my God. He <laughs> said, do you believe in the pandemic? Wow. Anyway, oh, just to say so that sad. we had a lot of different <laughs> kinds of people. Wow. Yeah. So, how, so Tammy asked this earlier, but how is a worker center organized? How is it different than like a labor union, which is, you know, everyone's in the tra same trade or the same industry? What is the thought process of doing the worker center? We're not like a substitute for unions, but we're an alternative, a different kind of organizing that goes beyond seeing somebody like just as an employee. So, you know, trade union, like if you're retired, you're no longer a member or you get fired or whatever, you're no longer a member. But for us, it's like you're, you're a worker, whether you have a job or not currently. And plus we have members who are full-time grandmothers, full-time mothers, we consider them workers. They're just not being paid, they're not employed. A lot of people now working in the gig economy, you know, they consider themselves um, their own boss, uh, but they're workers really. They're, you know, yeah. they, they, they will say, oh, I'm subcontracted and okay, I get 1099 or whatever, but they're workers. You are still working. And in many cases, you are still exploited. 
so we try to or, or bring people together around, you know, with that idea of, of uh, fighting to, you know, uh, go out and challenge this exploitation. Yeah. There, like, what is the awareness that, um, you know, I think that essential workers or restaurant workers are sort of almost fetishized at this point in the pandemic just because they're discussed in a way where they haven't been discussed before. Usually somebody like a delivery worker is invisible, right? Like never have any sort of conversation about them. And I think that some of the, it's strange because, you know, there's such conversations now about, you know, quote, essential workers. A lot of the people that, you know, I think that you organize and that you work with, you deal with. Like, is there, um, like, what what is the general feeling that amongst the people that you talk to about, you know, having to work, uh, you know, while others stay at home, you know, like, is there, is there, is it, is there some sort of resentment? Is there a, is there a questioning about, you know, um, well, should I still be doing this? Or is it, or, or like, what is the general mindset about having to go to work? I think that um, a lot of the people just feel like they have no choice. It's like, I have, I have a family to feed, I have to pay the rent. I just, I do it. Even though some have told me they're really nervous. Uh, like one of the home care workers I was talking to before her three days of shifts, she can't sleep well that night. She's just anxious about it. Mm -hmm. And I think that others, you know, they, they're a little afraid though, I, like I mentioned. And, and so, or, or because of the, their kids being at home, they just can't do it. And so they're really struggling. I mean, then they feel like pretty desperate. I mean, we've had some people like have to borrow money from here and there. I think more people are doing that actually, taking out all kinds of loans, borrowing from friends just to pay the rent. Because now, you know, with their, even when they have their jobs back again, it's only a few days a week, two, three days a week sometimes in the, in the laundromats or in the nail salons. They say very few customers and so very little tips. I mean, I, I really don't know how some of them, you know, keep, keep going with the rent and everything. Yeah, I wanted to pick up on the question of housing because, um, you know, you guys are worker centered, but you've also done a lot of stuff that from the outside doesn't look like workers issues, right? Like zoning campaigns, trying to fight gentrification in the city, trying to make sure that, as you were saying, like people, you know, have a way of dealing with their rent or fighting against rent, going on rent strike. So why, why have you, why do you do that? Like, why does a worker center get involved in housing issues? You want to talk about that intersection? Traditional organizing around housing considers people tenants. They organize people as tenants. And so it's often building by building, it's often targeting bad landlords like that one by one. Um, but it also ends up treating the tenants as so narrowly and also as kind of mm -hmm. victims of these mm -hmm. landlords. So we try to see people differently, that they're working people live here or work here also or our students here or who have volunteer in the churches here and to to define community a little bit differently it, it's made up of all of us i mean including me i don't live there but i've worked in organizing there 
uh, for a long time. And so I consider that my community too. Going back to the coronavirus a little bit, like what's the, what is the main, what's the main need that the people that you work with have right now? Because it just money, you know, is it, is it some sort of support for family, childcare? What, what is, what would you say is like the top priority for things that you're trying to provide that the government might be failing to provide? I think it's two things, especially it's health, like protection of health. Like, as I mentioned, especially for these healthcare workers uh, who we're taking care of people who, if they couldn't have this care in their homes, they would have to go to nursing homes. Yeah. And we already know that's been really just very dangerous. Um, and so health, um, all the protections necessary, and not just for them, but also for the deliveries and, uh, and the other service workers, because a lot of them that we talk to now still are not provided what they're needed. Like I spoke to one nail salon worker a few days ago and she said that uh, they were not giving her masks, just the plastic uh, uh, face shield, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, but um, the other thing is that they should be given support like for like any worker impacted by the coronavirus should be given some kind of monetary support from the government, not just a one-shot thing, and regardless of immigration status, to do what they need to do with it, whether it's to pay the rent or the food, whatever it is. And yeah, like ongoing, mm -hmm. because really people... Have people, I mean, have those people basically given up hope that the government will assist them just because like, you know, the the... It's very complicated and it seems very confusing. And it seems like people who might not speak English as their first language, or people who might have a, who might not have like very deep roots or support systems or networks here are particularly in bad shape because if it's difficult to get this money, even if the money is there, you know, like um, the people who are not gonna have access to it, the people who just aren't gonna know how to do it, you know? Um, is there like, is like, what, what is it? I, I guess my question is just like, are there, is there any hope in that community that perhaps, you know, like maybe the government is going to come through at some point? I think that one thing about a lot of the hardest hit workers, maybe that you're speaking of, is that they have no illusions about this uh, mm. system, about this government. And so, because already, even before the pandemic, a lot of these workers didn't even get basic things like the minimum wage. They'd be working, yeah. but they're not getting minimum wage. They get like $3, $4 an hour, only part of the tips, all that kind of thing. And so already they saw that um, enforcement of the labor law was not going on. And I'm not talking about just immigrant workers, also um, also citizen workers, like as far as the overtime pay and things went, or misclassified workers. Mm -hmm. Is there a hesitation for these people who are gonna be the most affected by COVID outbreaks, but also at the highest risk because they, you know, they're leaving their homes. Is there a reticence or a hesitation to even, you know, engage in testing programs or, 
you know, especially ones that would ask them for their information. Um, you know, like, are, are you seeing any of that? Like, I know that here in California, for example, like in parts of the Bay Area, the essential worker population is mostly Latino, you know, very, very reticent to subject to testing um, if certain companies are involved. So I know that for like Google was doing a lot of testing and, um, you know, people did not want to submit their information to Google. Now, whether or not those fears are founded or not, mm-hmm. I have no idea, you know, but I imagine that there is some founding of those fears. Like, is that is that also true amongst people that you work with? Like, is there, a, is there like a fear of even entering a system in that sort of way? I have not heard that because a lot of people going to public hospitals, a lot of public hospitals offer the free uh, testing. And then so you just go there and you don't have to give much information. So people have been getting tested. We've actually had, you know, we've lost probably half a dozen members uh, to coronavirus. And then a lot of people uh, among our membership have lost members of their family. Mm -hmm. So when they say, you know, a lot of Latino and Black um, communities, because of, you know, a whole array of problems like health, pre-existing health problems, lack of access to medical care, a million things make them very vulnerable uh, to this. And the fact that, you know, you have to go out to work also under these circumstances. As an organizer, somebody who works with these people have been through an unusual amount of uh unusual almost sounds like too kind of or too like soft (laughs) of a word but you know this horrific destruction and um seeing people die around them especially these home care workers where i'm sure it's terrifying you're both afraid of contracting the virus yourself but you're also afraid that you're going to kill the person that you're caring for seriously um and that uh you know that thought is never at side of your mind which is you know I've, I've done talked to a lot of these home care workers myself I know Tammy has as well you know both in our roles as reporters and it's like you have this dual fear right you have the fear that the person that you're caring for is going to infect you and your family but almost as strong and sometimes stronger is this fear that you are that you're positive you know and that you don't really have access to PPE you don't have access to uh, testing, you don't have access to the things that you could reasonably reassure the person you're caring for that that they're also going to be safe. Um, you know, like so this is like a massive burden. Like, what as an organizer, somebody who works with these people, like, like what is like the recovery going to be? You know, like when this is over, like how how do you sort of pick up the pieces? How do you how do you create like a you know like a labor force again? Like how do you you know how do you how do you bring these people together to advocate for? What they want is, are, and and you know, are there any like positives that have come out of this that you could build upon? Yeah, I think first of all, like I mentioned, people were already facing such hardship and fear beforehand. Even with the home care workers, they talked about before. Okay, maybe not that they would contract something from the patient, but that they were so responsible for this person. This person could fall on your watch Mm -hmm. and often did like when you were taking them to the bathroom or trying to bathe them or you were you you close your eyes for one second or something and that happens and that and you're responsible they're told over and over again if anything happens to the patient you are responsible 
And so that's a heavy burden. But then on the other hand, a lot of them, like I mentioned, because of working all these 24 hour shifts for years, they, they lost connections, contacts with their children and their own partners. And a lot of them lost, lost partner. I mean, their divorces, breakups, the children, they grew distant from their children. They didn't know what their kids were up to. Some of them kind of got involved in trouble. I mean, those kinds of things. So it wasn't like a coronavirus, but you know, a lot of other things uh, mm-hmm. kind of came out of this uh, from having to work like that. And I think that what we've seen with a lot of workers during this pandemic is it's a lot of people are much clearer about the government <laughs> and who the government yeah. is really working for much clearer and so actually you know some of the newer people we've been meeting through the ppe distribution you know want to be involved too so i mean it's a different kind of involvement at the moment so we're not able to do like big meetings and things but we're having small meetings and, and like i say we're doing uh press conferences and protests outdoors. Um, still, that's not huge like we you know, have done, but, but we're still doing it. And I yeah, think that that's... there's a chance. I think now, um, like we did an open letter to Biden, people mm-hmm. feel like, yeah, we got to, <laughs> now this is a new time. Uh, we got that one out. Now you got to go after this <laughs> we'll one. Yeah. yeah, let's hope. I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I agree that the big thing that could come out of this outside is both, you know, with the protests that were going on during the summer and now people really being aware of what's in some of these bills and, you know, seeing people like Amy Klobuchar, like get on television and say, defend $600 and say that like people who want $2,000 are trying to destabilize America. It's very clarifying. You know, I found it, I almost appreciate Amy Klobuchar (laughs) going out there and say that because like, you know, I always felt this way about you, but now, now you've just told me, you know, (laughs) you've just told all of us. It's like, you know, and uh, and it'll be interesting to see how Biden goes with it just because I think that, um, you know, seeing somebody like Chuck Schumer then flip around and basically support what AOC and Rashida Tlaib and weirdly enough, Donald Trump are arguing. So weird. It's so, uh, you know, it, maybe there will be some sort of pressure on them that can build forward. Um, yeah. Uh, t- on, sorry. Well, on that point, I was wondering, it was striking Joanne, you said that, a lot of the people you talk to have no illusions, especially now. Do you feel like the attitude, I mean, I know you've been doing this for a while. Do you feel like people's attitude towards the government and their, and just like social, the sort of support, you know, through Medicare, Medicaid and their unions, has that eroded over time? And when you're talking about these working conditions and how I can't believe we're arguing against the 24 hour workday when we used to have the eight hour workday, um, you know, Tammy wrote a piece about the home care workers that that she shared with us, and I had the same reaction, which is, you know, the sort of how did not not you know, in addition to how bad this is, but like how did we get to the, this point? Um, that's what I can't figure out. So I'm just kind of wondering, you know, you read a lot about this. 
have things just been getting just steadily worse over time? Is that your perception? And do you feel like there is an increased consciousness among the people you talk to that these things are just getting worse and worse? I think that things are getting worse and worse. And I, but I think that the failings of the Democrats also uh, led to Trump's uh, election because I think a lot of people felt left out, like their interests were not being represented by the Democrats and who were always more uh, helping the, the Wall Street and the elites and all people saw that. And I think that among the people that we work with, I think there's always been a lot of cynicism about government and politicians. And so some of them, you know, leading up to this election, we would talk a lot to our members, both those who could vote and those who were undocumented or for whatever reason couldn't vote, just felt what they felt. And so a lot were just really like, oh, they're both bad, you know. The, and so uh, some of them almost were wanting to take a position of just sit by the sidelines because, you know, both are so terrible. Uh, what difference does it make? And so I guess as a worker center, try to feel like how do we use every means to organize? And people saw how Trump really, uh, you know, uh, fueled the divisions in our country. Like you're working more than ever a couple jobs or you're working at home and trying to parent at the same time, which is work, right? And, or you don't have enough employment or you're unemployed. Those are two sides of the same coin. And this system really relies on that, that kind of pitting against interests of one another for competition. So that we're fighting among yeah. ourselves for whatever little we can get instead of coming together to fight for what we really want, all of us. But how do you get your, like when you're having those conversations with workers, how do you avoid just a sense of nihilism around electoral politics or the state? Because, you know, I think like, of course there's reasons to be skeptical of the democratic party. They are obviously not our salvation, but I think also, I mean, a lot of the people that you mentioned from the different immigrant you know, groups that, that and mass works with like they're also from places with like socialist traditions where we might you know really believe in big government government and kind of what the state can do for people and so yeah just like what do those conversations look like i mean as organizers i feel like you you guys probably still do want like a modicum of a you know decent government on which to like build an organizing strategy right it does matter who's in office and it does matter like what the state does for people right so yeah yes it's very challenging uh, because you're right, people come with all kinds of different experiences. And also people are influenced by a lot of media. And so leading up to the elections, for example, on WhatsApp, which a lot of Latinos um, yeah. get, there is a whole lot totally. of, oh my God, of really racist anti-black stuff and where they would mm. say like the leader of the Black Lives Matter is into witchcraft. That's mm. why they're so violent. <laughs> and then they said, if you elect oh, no. Biden, there'll be more of that violence. So stuff mm. like that. So we try to talk to people about how, look, as workers, we can choose to just sit by idly and see what happens, or we 
use it to organize, raise people's consciousness about what's going on and what needs to happen, what we need to do. And so we try to talk to people about, don't you agree though, that Trump is dividing the country more, you know, by, and that's not in our interest. Maybe as a, a more optimistic note, what are some concrete policies that you think could actually be unifying? I mean, maybe you could talk more about the 24 hour workday campaign or other concrete measures that, that your group has been uh, see as a sort of an alternative to these sort of divisive um, type, of, type of campaigns. Well, yeah, I think the eliminating the 24 hour day is one. But I also think that repealing that employer sanctions provision that I mentioned earlier, because, you know, workers in workplaces often have documented, undocumented um, immigrants or US born all in the same workplace. You try to organize together. Then the ones, and you might even, um, really get something going. It might be around owed wages or whatever. And then the employer can just fire you. And then yes, you can put a, a, a charge in a National Labor Relations Board. Okay, you are fired for organizing or whatever. And then maybe you might even win. So then the boss says, okay, I'll take you back. Show me your papers. So then only the ones, you know, who authorize work go back. The rest you're out yeah. of luck. So it splits that, you know, so you don't have equal right to organize together. So it really weakens your position. And I think that, you know, for us, so I think that we really need to get rid of that law so that we have more of a chance to come together as equals in this country. Do, do any of you have any other questions? Um, we have a second <laughs> segment that we need to get to, but Joanne, uh, Joanne, you certainly don't need to stick around for that second segment because <laughs> okay. we're just talking about Joanne. something completely else. But yeah, um, <laughs> thanks for coming on. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks very much. To, that was great. Yeah, good to talk. Thank to you. Bye yeah. bye. 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 Um, okay, so hopefully the uh, hopefully the audio is still okay for this, and uh, we wanted to answer some of your questions on the show. And I think the way that we're going to do this going forward is that we're going to lump them together by category, and then we're just going to talk about them by category. So we are getting a lot of questions about uh, sort of like diversity and uh, ODI, which is Offices of Diversity and Inclusion. And I think that we want to answer some of these questions because I think that there's been some confusion about what our stance is. And certainly I think we actually have different stances on all this. So I don't want to make some monolithic podcast stance about all this. But um, I think some of the confusion is just, you know, at least personally speaking, is just because, you know, I don't know if my thoughts on this are particularly clear. So Adriana Rizzo, she, yes, uh, she wrote us before about this question and she followed up and she said, I have a comment clarification on my question. While there is certainly a top-down push for DEI, I, and I share your disgruntlement about the administrative bureaucracy <laughs> version, there's also recently been a more organic bottom-up move amongst academics in general towards diversity and inclusion. After the George Floyd protest, people in academic science suddenly became aware of racism, decided they need to diversify their ranks. All these scientific societies, for example, the Paleontology Society, uh, have special meetings, synopsis, this or 
symposia this year where they investigate the possibility of racism in their ranks and try to figure out how to get more minorities into their overwhelmingly white fields. The problem is that the people behind these initiatives are all scientists. So they're all white liberals who also have ill-informed political identities, rather like the quote STEM Asian phenomenon discussed earlier on the podcast. <laughs> I really like Tammy's point that. in response to the previous question that a lot of DEI trainings like historic context. And I think the problem is exacerbated with these bottom off efforts because the people in charge have below average understanding of the relevant history and culture because of their STEM background. Um, okay. So um, it seems like what, uh, what Adriana is saying is that, or Adriana is saying is that, you know, like, look, there's good and there's bad ODI stuff, right? There's good and there's bad <laughs> diversity stuff in that by painting too broad of a brush that perhaps we're dismissing things that are good. Now, I think we can all agree, right, that it is not good for certain fields in science to just be like white dudes, right? Now, some of them, uh, and I don't think that we are of the mind, at least I am not of the mind that this, some of this is just inevitable, right? Like, it shouldn't be inevitable that like, you know, theoretical math, for example, or whatever is, you know, all going to be like white dudes from Russia, you know, <laughs> it shouldn't be inevitable <laughs> that, uh, that like some from the Ukraine, <laughs> that cultural anthropology <laughs> is going to be like all women from, you know, Wellesley, Massachusetts, right? Like that, like, these are not like, uh, these are not, <laughs> there's nothing about a field that makes it particularly germane to one type of person. I think we all agree on that. Yeah. Okay. I have okay. thoughts on this. We go on. Yeah. Uh, Andy's mean, like, no. Yeah, Andy's like, <laughs> no. From Ukraine. Actually, if you grew up in Wellesley, <laughs> there's a 100% chance that you'll be studying, you know, like chimps in, uh, you know, chimpanzees in some, <laughs> in some foreign country. Um, the, uh, so I, and, you know, if we, is there a way that we can sort of cleave the, the difference between these two, which I think is a totally fascinating question that gets at the heart of, a lot of what we talk about you know over the past few days i've been having an absolute meltdown i don't know why but like about this vaccine stuff and some of the culture war conversations about it, like i get so mad like i today like i actually was so mad that like i just cursed out loud you know i was like sitting in my yard and i just like fuck you know because i was so mad and i just don't get that mad about this stuff what? or what else because you were mad about the vaccine line cutting last time we saw you. But yeah, I was what, really mad about the vaccine line. Now cutting, what? But now it's like <laughs> this conversation about how like the vaccine, there's going to be this like vaccine rollout plan that was woke, you know, and it was going to kill all these people. Oh. And the only people who saved it were like the culture warriors, like Maddie Glacius and like fucking, uh, oh my God. and, um, and like Noah, Noah Smith and, and if though and like you know what? Yasha Monk, and if those guys hadn't like come out and been like, "This is too woke," you know, like uh, that 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 the that APEC would have put, like put out the put out like a terrible plan or something like that, you know, it's all bullshit. Like every single so incredible reporter was just like, "Yeah, those <laughs> like nobody in that room knows who Matt Iglesias is." You know, this is part of a process where people put in different inputs. There are different presentations and slides. And everybody has their say, and then they come to a conclusion. And so there are going to be people who are sort of like aggressively woke within that space who are going to put out things that might end up with bad results because their general uh, impetus is to put forth a vision that protects the reason why they were hired in that first place, right? Which is to talk about certain things and maybe their vision of diversity is bad. You know, it's very possible. You know, it's almost probable at this point. Um, 
it reminds me of like when uh do you remember during the beginning of the trump administration when every single memo that somebody would send within the administration would get leaked and there are all these like things that would put out being like the trump administration is going to send border patrol guards to patrol portland oregon and round out immigrants right and it was in the end they're just like no some crazy person within the administration sent an email you know and like yeah. like the conflation between that and what actually happened bad things happen, but like, you know, like it wasn't like anybody was really taking that memo all that seriously. And to say that that memo ended up being the actual plan is a lie, you know? And so like, that's sort of what's happening. But I think that generally, you know, the reason why I'm getting so mad about this, I think, and we <laughs> talked about it with Ta Tommy as well, I don't mean to rant for so long, but like the reason why I'm so mad about it is because I think the most important thing that we can do right now is to do what Adrian is talking about. We need to uh, figure out a way that we can distinguish between like good faith, good, well-intentioned efforts at, you know, restoring some sort of racial justice within fields where there's racism, you know, equity within fields where there's zero equity, things that are not just so like protective of a certain type of like quote unquote neoliberal identity politics or whatever. We have to be able to distinguish that from like the bad stuff, you know, and right now we don't have the tools to do that at all, I don't think. And so if you are like myself or if you're like, I think Tammy as well, I don't know about Andy, I think Andy <laughs> too, where you generally are like, we have to figure this out. <laughs> we are being constantly bombarded on both sides, right? So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in the boat where I'm just very confused as well. And so when I was reading, reading Adriana's email, and I think a lot of these emails are in the context of the academy, I was thinking, um, you know, I'm just observing this, so I don't have a value judgment, but I think something interesting is happening for the, for instance, this idea that like paleontology has to be woke now, like which makes me think like, well, I don't actually know anything about paleontology. There might be an actual interesting history there of like, you know, it's, know, it's colonial origins or it's racist origins or something specifically going on there. But not all fields are created alike and have the same origins and their whole attitude towards like diversity will always kind of slightly be different. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying that like that's good or bad, um, but it makes me think of this example of a few years ago, I remember on Twitter, there was uh, people were coming after like early Renaissance studies for not being woke, which is, you know, people saying like 15th century Western Europe. And part of me is sympathetic, but part of me is also like, what's well, early Renaissance studies? Like if you want to study the early Renaissance, you probably have made your decision that you want to study like, you know, Michelangelo or like, you know, like basically a small corner of the earth, like 500 years ago. And you can get mad about how undiverse that field is. And I understand you could talk about, you know, colonialism and, you know, and gender dynamics and racism and all that stuff. But part of me is also sort of like, um, uh, the problem isn't so much the field itself is not diverse. It's just like the field itself occupies such a big part of the academy to begin with, like every school in America, for whatever reason, you know, I mean, I don't want to. Is that you know. true? They all have early Renaissance departments. Well, that's what I, was, I don't want to put any of my friends out of a job, <laughs> oh, right? Oh, but like okay. every school in America has to have someone who could talk about Shakespeare and Michelangelo. Yeah, right? like we should replace all that with <laughs> four more biology professors. And yeah, like I don't want to undercut the, the hard sciences. What is this shit? But uh, <laughs> we're in this weird situation Looking where we have paintings. Well, so there's disciplines that are like classic disciplines, like English literature and early Renaissance stuff that are decidedly unwoke, right? Because they're created in the 18th, 19th century that were supposed to like buy and for. But now aren't they changing? Like, isn't it? Isn't... That's what I'm saying. They're changing yeah. in a way that is, and I think kind of like where the content and the former are getting so far apart 
that they're kind of losing their coherence. Well, okay, so this has happened in yeah. class. I don't mean to, I'm just having a conversation. I'm not like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so just I, adding I, here, like classics is kind of like that right now. Like, have yeah. you noticed that like classics basically is a, a bunch of, you know, it's a lot of white people. And, um, the, but the lens through which a lot of people are looking through classics now are certainly in a social justice type of way or what could right. be called a social justice way. One of the premier people who is doing this work is actually Mark Zuckerberg's sister. Did you know that's like Mark Zuckerberg's sister is a classicist and wow. she started, uh, Tammy's giving this look, Mark Zuckerberg's sister <laughs> seems like actually a quite cool person. She like yeah, started okay. this journal that really re-examines a lot of things, you know, and, and some of it I think is wonderful scholarship. So for example, like, uh, you know, like the scholarship around uh, ancient Roman and Greek statues and how they used to be painted, the yeah. skin color used to be painted mm -hmm. and that the skin color was painted all these different hues that showed, you know, that it was kind of like a multi-ethnic society there, but that, you know, the fact that all the paint rubs away and it's this right. white marble, it makes it kind of strange, you know, it makes it sort of seem like that those periods were all super white. That's great, you know, yeah. but, you know, within there you have like other forms of things where it is just sort of this sort of tradition you know i don't know stuff that feels rote at this point right which is just sort of this constant litigation of privilege yeah. lines within the thing that you're working about and then in the end you're sort of making the same exact argument over and over again across disciplines is that what you're talking about andy i think yeah i think what's happening in a lot of these disciplines that are not naturally oriented towards social justice is that you're getting kind of a lack of cohesion and probably a lot of this sort of infighting and Again, there's no value judgment here. I just kind of think it's interesting to watch from afar because I do think the same thing is happening over and over where like, you know, like Renaissance studies, Shakespeare, all this stuff was created to make basically, uh, you know, Westerners feel proud of their civilization. Right? It's like the rise of the West. That's what yeah. all these courses were designed to do. And now you're trying to design them to do something completely different, but you're also supposed to be like good at still talking about Macbeth, you know? And it's <laughs> kind of this... So I think it's leading to a lot of incoherence and like confusion in these disciplines. And I think, you know, Adriana's question is like, well, these paleontologists are so suddenly talking about social justice and fighting racism when they have had no training as such. And in a sense, I think that's not unique to paleontology, which might sound like an extreme example, but I think in much more subtler versions, this is right. happening in a lot of parts in the academy and probably you know beyond the academy as well right are you conflating two things so like one is like uh one is like a hiring thing right which happens in like in in department meetings and stuff like that and and sure. committee searches and the other is what actually happens and is talked about within the classroom like and so i i, I would agree that i think that there is this distressing trend amongst the academy where every single class turns into like a discussion of relative privilege and and power right and um i as like a person who learns stuff does not would not want to go through an educational process like that where every single class was me learning the same thing um over and over again i would rather just read i don't know like epictetus or something like that in a classics class or i'd rather read uh you know um Marcus Aurelius. What what do people read in classics? Marcus Aurelius depicted us. What else do they read? <laughs> I love Aeschylus, but I don't know. Oh, Aeschylus, yeah. yeah. Uh, Catullus. You know, I'd rather read yeah. those things without the filter of like a social justice filter. Like I would not. I don't want to talk about. You know, I I just remember like I took a Joyce class in college, and all we talked about was um, like all we talked about was like uh, gender in Joyce, and I appreciated the conversation, and yet I felt like I did not. <laughs> really read Ulysses you know I read <laughs> one specific read of Ulysses mm, that was sort of seen as being monolithic and 
But at the same time, I do think that's a little different, Andy, than, you know, people trying to diversify their actual field sure. of people, you know? Right, right, right. But I guess yeah. what I think what age, oh, sorry. Well, it's just last thought is just, I think I agree with that. And I'm not, and again, I'm not criticizing any of this. I just think it's interesting that the sort of original mission of these fields is getting changed in a way that there might be a generational shift where some like octogenarian in the field is like, I didn't, I didn't, I never learned any of this, you know, versus their 30, 40 something colleagues. Um, and yeah, I, I think, I think, you know, a lot of this diversity stuff within the academy is interesting because it's a conversation obviously being led by certain fields and disciplines and types of, um, you know, people within academia where, uh, but but there's I think a certain assumption that gets made that all these disciplines and departments just automatically know what to do mm. about you know social like gender yeah. and That's racial true. equity yeah. which is they generally don't. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think it's also confusing what they're supposed to be doing. Like on the hiring front, is like an ODI office supposed to be saying okay we need to get this rainbow coalition going on in our department in order to do X, Y, and Z in the classroom? Or is it just a completely, you know, superficial tokenistic display of, you know, different races? No, I think it's specifically, you need to have an X person in your department. Right. So I guess my thing about that is like, I feel like I was just, (laughs) just texting with a friend whose husband is like, a Korean early Renaissance scholar, <laughs> but oh, take that, that, Andy. I know he <laughs> in Korea, right? Like he but oh, studies, studies, studies like Michelangelo and yeah. yeah I, I don't know. I just said Michelangelo. Like Dutch manuscripts. I don't right, actually yeah. really understand. Um, but anyway, he. I, I'm just bringing that up because, like, I think he, somebody like him, like to be hired in an American department, like it would be mm. great and interesting for him to be there. But he also wouldn't want to be expected to like teach like race and Dutch manuscripts, 15th century, right? Like he wants to just do his shit and be a human being. And I feel like my problem with a lot of the ODI stuff around hiring is it essentially displaces like what should be the concern, what should be worker questions, you know, which, you know, are essentially just like questions about like having access to places to work and having good conditions on the job. And really those are like worker justice concerns that really, I don't think should be digested necessarily through ODI. Um, and then I guess just like on the other, like in the other category, just in defense of Jay's gender in Joyce class, like <laughs> I think I'm torn about that because I think there are some people who need to take a gender and Joyce class to like love Joyce. And then there's probably a professor who should just, if they're an amazing professor, could just teach Joyce and the students would each draw out the thing that they need and want and love from that. Right. Well, it was more just that, like, there was no other conversation, you know? So I feel like that's, like, that seems like poor instruction. We would read, like, The Dead or, <laughs> you know, we read, like, Araby, obviously. We read um, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Yeah. And uh, I think we were, I'm sure we read Ulysses. But, like, you know, and it was just, I don't know. Tammy, do you have this experience when you book. talk? <laughs> like, I, I've spent a lot of the pandemic talking to young people. And, um, <laughs> you know, like, I talked to... Uh, I think I've talked about this on the show before, but, you know, you talk to students, you talk to young journalists, you talk to young writers, and it used to be that their only question was what? They're like, well, how do I get a job, right? Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, well, I don't know, you know, like, <laughs> it'll work out for you at some point. And then I'd tell them about how I spent eight years, public. you know, no one would publish anything that I wrote. And then, 
you know how you don't give up and basically you just assume that the whole industry is crooked, but maybe you'll just get lucky. And sometimes you get lucky. Right? <laughs> that used to be my answer. Over the last three years or so, that question has dropped off. And the only question I get is, are about identity and like power in newsrooms and oh, race wow. in newsrooms. And I find it so frustrating because it's, I'm not frustrated at the kids for asking that question. Yeah. I just don't know why a 17, 18, 19, 20 year old is so fixated on that question. That's so interesting. Know? So they yeah, ask so you like, I want to be a journalist. How do you deal with racism yeah, like, in your industry? How do you industry? deal with like a, uh, with like being, you know, like it's all stuff like that. Yeah. Like, you know, like how do you deal with like being like a, my a person of color within like these newsrooms? First of all, it's like, I don't go in the newsroom. I sit in my basement. So that's the first way I deal with it. But secondly, when I did work in newsrooms, yeah, it sucked. But like, like you're not going to get anywhere if you just fixate on, on that all the time. And it seems like there that's has so been weird. something where yeah. a generation has been educated to think about those questions first, right? Um, especially when they're talking to somebody like me, who's not a white dude, you know, and they just assume that this is the thing that I think about all the time, when in fact, I think about it very little, you know, I only think about it in terms of like opportunistic stuff from time to time, you know, how can I leverage my non-whiteness? And then sometimes <laughs> it's like, I got some tricks about that if you want to know that. But this other part of it is just like, how do I... Uh, deal with like the constant melancholia and microaggressions of working in this industry. And just like, I don't know, you know, just like fucking tough it out or quit or, you know, tell people to fuck off. Like, you know, I've done all three of those and to mixed results, but like, you know, like you just <laughs> fucking, I don't know, like how could you live, yeah, how do you do your work when the only thing you think about is your place within the workplace, right? I agree with that. Yeah. Oh. Is that what you get too, Andy? Are they like, what is it like to be a Chinese American professor? <laughs> uh, no, I don't get as many fans as Jay, or any fans at all, actually. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, if it's in academia, if, they're, if they do what I do, they're probably, you I mean Asian history, they probably know. They know what they signed up for. Um, and uh, do they ask and, like, you know, Andy, why aren't you a white man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how did they how did they do affirmative action? On mostly, you it's you mostly Asians <laughs> who are just like finally can talk to another Asian. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> like, oh, you seem to be an expert in China. I assume that you would be a white man. <laughs> <laughs> it's mostly. I mean, I've talked Tammy? to quite, yeah. Wait, Tammy, you don't get that question. I'm sure a lot of journalists are reaching well, out okay, to you. Okay, I was. They, I don't. I don't like on that question. I. I what I was going to ask you is, do you think, both of you guys, do you guys think that if it's true that there is this maybe generational thing on like going to that question first before the other sorts of questions, it's because of the degradation and lack of opportunity in the sector? Because, no. I mean, there is, you don't think that's why? Because I'm like, there are no jobs. jobs. Yeah, the I think it's yeah more, there's so few I, jobs. That might be an input, but I really do think it is like a education, like it's something that okay. they've been taught and- um, I just remember very specifically 10 years ago or so I was dating this girl and she was uh, in a very prestigious MFA program out here in the Bay Area and I had also done an MFA program and so we discussed our respective MFA programs from time to time and you know for me I was just like yeah I just go you know we I didn't particularly enjoy my MFA experience, but all we did was talk about like experimental fiction and try different things out and uh, talk almost entirely about form, right? There's no conversation about, about, uh, about like politics or race politics within the work or gender politics within the specific work. In fact, if you brought that up, you know, like this story seems X or this character seems X or how do you resolve this? Do you have the right to say this? Do you have the right to write this? I think that you would have been really 
you know, castigated within that program, which I think is healthy because you're, you're going to these programs to learn how to write and to experiment with writing and figure it out. And she said that in her program, the only conversation they ever had was about that other stuff, you know, like, Oh, "Oh, what does it mean if you're an X identity and you're writing about Y and uh, the, the time difference between the two is not great. You know, I think I finished my MFA like three years before she started her MFA. Hmm. So it's not a timing thing. I think it's just a specific, I think it's a specific type of program that exists that now has become somewhat ubiquitous in elite schools where these are the only conversations that happen. And I don't know, like, look, I try and be patient about this stuff, but I just find it to be really (laughs) destructive. You know, like, like, how could you, like, you're trying to write a book. It's fucking hard enough. You know, you're trying to write fiction. It's hard enough. If every single word you write is besieged by these questions and doubts about like whether or not the thing that you're doing is passing some rubric of wokeness, then it sucks, you know? And so um, I do think that, like, I guess that makes me very sympathetic towards people who are trying to resist that. And yet at the same time, and this is why I was saying, you know, talking about the vaccine stuff at the beginning, it's just like, there is, there needs to be a way to resist that sort of stuff and to just be like, hey, you got to just toughen up and you need to, you know, write your fucking novel instead of besieging me with all these questions about identity. <laughs> or like, go out and report a story, you know? Um, instead you of know, being your own sensitivity reader. Exactly. You don't like, you don't need a sensitivity reader and five life coaches because you haven't written anything, you know, <laughs> like, go out and write something first. Um, which, you know, is like a very, like, I don't know, I guess it's like, yeah. it could be classified as like a Korean immigrant type of mentality. But at the same time, I do think that these fields do need to change some, you know, I do think that some would benefit from having some diversity within them. And so then how do you, yeah. how do you separate those two out? And I've given up again, that's my, cause I've given, you can't separate them out. Like you either got to be on the woke side or you got to be on the reactionary side. And I don't know what side I'm going to pick, but I was having a conversation with my friend today. Cause I was so mad at Matt Iglesias and I, and we both were just like, fuck it. I'm just gonna be the annoying work woke person, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> because fuck him. No, but you let Matt Iglesias win if you do that. <laughs> Um, so this might be related i don't know if we have enough time to read more of the comments but a comment yeah yeah we have time yeah helen um who is at the uw shout out huskies uh has a question that i think i I won't read the whole thing but i'll summarize because i think it actually was related to what you're saying jay she's uh trained to be a librarian and especially for children's books and she was riffing off our conversation about children's books um and but she was saying that she finds a lot of these quote unquote diverse stories for children are quote <laughs> ca- catered either toward upwardly ascendant assimilationist non-white people, <laughs> for example, books mentioning racism, but the racism is described all about the classic list of microaggressions, such as a black protagonist having to prove they aren't criminals or an Asian protagonist having to prove they can't speak English, et cetera. Oh, man. And then she kind of ends with this idea that she thinks that the issue is that a lot of these authors are writing for a white publishing industry that I would expect, say, an Asian author to write about Asian issues or a Black yeah, author to write about Black issues. And especially in a way where they want the message of the story to be, you know, Asian and Black and Latino people are just as civilized Excellent. and yeah. upwardly mobile as white right. people are, right? Yeah, yeah. So I wonder, you know, part of also what you're talking about, Jay, is an issue where, um, yeah, all these, all these diverse, quote-unquote diverse writers feel like they have to perform diversity or um, for editors, audiences that are predominantly, you know, white um, um, and, you know, maybe male. Um, I don't know if that 
you know, if that's, that's, if that's part of it. Although, I mean, that, that could not have like changed, you know, since you started, but I don't know if that's like a, it's been exacerbated with all the talk of diversity um, and having different voices. Your, do you read your kid these books? Do you read the, your kid these, these sort of woke I don't mean to say it's so pejorative. I'm going to stop saying, yeah. do you, do you, do you, do you read them these sort of like, you know, um, I, I call them dignity books, you yeah. know, like, like we are dignified people too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I mean, we like the books where they just incidentally are POC. I know um, one of our listeners, Jillian Tamaki, she has books that where the characters just happen to be Asian, mm. um, but they don't talk about that in the book. And I like, I like those because but like the themes are kind of Asian. They just don't talk about it. Um, There's one I really like, which is called like H is for Hadmini or something like that. I forget what the actual name is, but it's like, it's, it's, in, it's this amazing book where it's these two Korean kids who are Korean American, but they can't speak any Korean. And so they're like four and six or something like that. And their grandmother disappears. And so they follow her and she goes in through, and it's like Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe. And they end up in this like kind of like fantastical, but very folklorish Korean thing. And all the animals are speaking in Korean, but they can't understand the animals because they're speaking in Korean. And so like, but they can kind of understand. And so it's about them like Korean in the book, like the thought bubbles or the dialogue. Yeah, the thought bubbles are in like Hangul. And then at the end, they have a glossary so that the kids who are Uh, learning Korean, who are growing up Korean American can actually like look back and read. But like, that's like an amazing book to me because it actually is confronting like an actual population with a real problem, you know, and the kids are like brats or whatever. There's nothing particularly interesting, but the kids are a learning about like <laughs> Korean folklore. B, they're also learning Korean, but C, it's like, you know, like it seems like a very honest book about, about race yeah. and, and like assimilation and all that sort of stuff that is really tailored towards like three-year-olds. And it's also interesting for Korean parents to read, I think, because, uh, you know, I can read the book, I can read the Korean, but I read it at like a very slow pace. <laughs> and sometimes I have to look in the glossary. I think all that is intentional by the author. I think the author is like a genius, you know? And so like, it's not like these books have to be like that. They can confront these issues in an interesting way. Yeah. The part that's bo- bothersome to me is exactly what I think um, the listener is talking about, Helen, and what you're pointing out, Andy, which is that like, they seem so corny. You know, and I don't know the better word, like, you know, like the, the, the standard is this like corny story about like, hey, this is my culture and you should respect it, you know, which I just think is always going to be aimed at white people. Yeah, because like, I don't know, I don't need to read a book about how you should respect like Korean American culture. I don't, you know, I have made my conclusion. I don't respect it. You know? <laughs> so I would rather be placed in a place where it's like an actual thing that people are grappling with, you know, yeah. now, does that mean that H is for how many has broad appeal out side of the korean diaspora i don't know, <laughs> you know i was maybe, gonna say like <laughs> the poor author sold like 15 books so the next the book's gonna be that, like h is for harvard interesting thing is that my um my mother-in-law is the one who sent it to us you know and mm. you know she is uh she is like a white person from newport rhode island and she you know she found this book so it must That's be somewhat cool. popular interesting. Um, for her to have found it and you know i don't know it's my favorite children's book only because I don't, I think it's important for to have books that are, you know, culturally appropriate for kids, but man, like, can they please be like that where it's like fun and, you know, and then fun for the parents to read and actually address as something that's interesting and not just being like, 
Yeah. Like a smelly lunchbox story. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> The other issue, I mean, I feel like we get going a lot of different tangents with the uh, National Book Awards recently, and a uh, friend of some of us on the show, Richard So, recently has an op-ed in the New York Times, where I guess you all are familiar with this. There's this huge um, thing on social media the last few years in terms of authors sharing how much they get paid oh, yeah. for books, and it's mm-hmm. like it's like I outrageous. Not be doing that, <laughs> <laughs> but it is. It does seem outrageous how how little opportunity there is for non-white authors to get published um, at all these different levels. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, the incentives are there to like, for better or for worse, there's economic incentives to kind of play up. You're the, you know, you're this spring of 2020's black author or, you know, fall of 2022's Asian author. And so, you know, it's not just like these authors are like, their minds are twisted. It's like, well, there's actual like economic incentives to to write in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And there's not, and everyone's, knows that there's only a few spots you know even in journalism you know i think i think i can say without feeling braggy that i'm like one of the asian people in journalism right tammy you would agree right like there are a few asian people i think he's one one of of the top asians so then sometimes i cannot disagree that you're an asian person in journalism (laughs) for 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 a while i was like the most oh my god for a while think about it and I would just be like well there's not many of us and you know look there's like five stories that these magazines assign about Asians every year maybe less I'll do two of them you know <laughs> and uh but they're not it's not like they're gonna expand oh, it to 10 stories you know and so at some point someone's gonna come along and they're gonna be better than me and they're just gonna assign the the two to that person either that or i'm gonna like be so lazy that i just decide not to do the two and then i look up and some guy named like fucking daniel kim or something like that has like take my spot you know <laughs> i was gonna say you've you've already did you already kill three of them no no i'm not a competitive person but i do think about this and so i've been waiting for daniel kim or you know or like or grace kim or you know like uh, or, or like meryl, meryl, meryl yeah. kwan or whoever to come by <laughs> just come up and just rip it away from me because i'm just like please do it i don't want to do this anymore <laughs> But you know, um, and I'm sure that they're out there, and I and, um, and yeah. I think there are a lot of Asian journalists who are better than me. But I <laughs> sit and I, I I look like you know, like my friend Frank Xiang. I said like, maybe Frank will just take my spot, you know, um, at the just it'd be great. I, Frank and I even talk about it. I'm like Frank, you know, just. <laughs> just <laughs> but the point is, like, you do think about it in terms of that way, right? You ter- yeah. you think about it in terms of scarcity. You think about it in terms of well, there's only four of us, and they're not. They're never gonna let us there be five so what do i do you know do i give up do it do i like and then what's going to happen when when a young person comes by and they don't expand it to five you definitely think about it that way tammy do you think about it that way you're less like race determined you're less race deterministic than i am i think Tammy, have you felt pigeonholed in the kind of things that people want you to write i think maybe a little bit with korea reporting i think i mentioned to you guys a few weeks ago that i've had that experience where an you know, an editor is kind of like, oh, well, you could do this thing as though I wouldn't have added value in another field, you know? Um, Wait, what do you mean? Yeah, What's an like, example? Oh, sorry. What's an example? So an editor saying like, you know, I basically is saying like, I think your most added value is that you're, you can report bilingually in Korean. And so you should do that as opposed yeah. to like, 
oh, but you also have done like years of labor reporting and like, you know, yeah. kind of seeing this other possibility that's not attached to race. I think that that definitely comes into play a lot. I mean, I'd be curious from Helen though about like the upwardly mobile part of the narratives, like whether that's true just generally in children's fiction. I don't know if you like what books you guys choose for your kids, but I assume a lot of the stories <laughs> are very like bootstrappy, like across race yeah. and just like, yeah, you should become <laughs> this like successful person, you know? Yeah. And some of them really aren't that way now, I would say. They're um, not that way? Well, there's ones that I like. So there's one about like a person who takes a bus that I really like. That's definitely not like that <laughs> oh, at all. It's just about public transit. Yeah. yeah, they just take a bus and then it's Is it about, the wheels on the bus go round and round. <laughs> no, no, it's not the pigeon. It's not the pigeon. Not the pigeon book either. too. Yeah. yeah, it's it's about this kid who's like going to a soup kitchen with his grandmother because they're poor and they have to take the bus. And it's just about how basically the book is just about it should be normal to go to a soup kitchen. You know, like we don't oh, have nice. to like that's make cool. this kid. No, so that's a good book. I so that's white people. Do you? But like, no, where do you no, find? No, it's black. They're black. It's black. It's, the okay. characters are black in it. So you found one that's outside I, of that one. I Helen's like framework. That's nice. I of course love the snowy day, like everybody right. else. But that was written by and drawn by a white guy, Ezra Jack Keats. But you know, oh, was it really? Yeah, they made that yeah. into an animated um, show that? on. on you Amazon? don't know the snowy day. Oh, really? You know Snowy Day. Well, I just Google the just yeah. Google Snowy Day and you'll you'll okay. recognize it. But they've made it. I I was surprised. I found they made it with like an all black cast as a as a TV show now. Oh, oh really? I didn't realize it was like. But it was, it was written by it was illustrated by a white guy. You said so. Well, it was they, it was written and illustrated by a white guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. who uh, you know who did a lot of like jazz paintings. I mean, this is like oh. that book is ancient. So yeah, it's, it's from the sixties. I think it's before oh, questions wow. about this came up. You know. Yeah. Um, you know, I did this like, do you remember, like, uh, maybe this is too much of a tangent, but we can just edit out if it is. Do you remember that whole controversy <laughs> that came around when that woman wrote that YA book about like uh, Muslim internment camps and a, and like a Huck Finn story about a, about a young white girl who takes this Muslim woman. This is like into some dystopian future of Muslim people in America in a concentration Whoa. camp. And she like helps one escape driving up the highway to Canada. And it got all the shit, you know, it was basically perma canceled before it came out. <laughs> and so I went and I, the woman who wrote the book teaches at the University of Kansas. So when I was at Vice, we flew out to the University of Kansas, talked to her. And while we were talking to her, we also talked to like a specialist in children's books um, who supported her, you know, and this woman was basically her friend and said, look, like we need to have a more expansive vision of this, but we should also understand that children's books are important in these sorts of ways and shaping young mm -hmm. people's minds. And um, she just pointed out all these books that were in the seventies and eighties that I went and read. Like one was like the slave dancer that was like on, what? like won the Caldecott award or Newbery award. <laughs> and the, these books are fucking horrible. Oh my God. Like, what they're is just that? so racist. Yeah, what is, what is the slave dancer sounds, Do I even want to know. know what that's well, about? We get canceled just for describing someone exactly. else's book. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it won all these awards, right? And so yeah. like, um, I don't know. I do feel some sympathy after having that conversation towards this idea that like we should make children's books different right that we should not just yeah. have it be this like it should not just be yeah. babar which as we talked about in an earlier show right. <laughs> it's just pure colonialism you know in this disgusting way um but at the same time i don't know i, I just think it's it, i don't think it's a particularly hard standard which is just that some things are good and some things are bad right and it just seems too often right now 
that what people want is just sort of a social justice lesson within a children's book. And that's going to produce bad books. Yeah. Viet Thanh Nguyen basically wrote an op-ed in the Times. Did you read that? Oh, yeah. I saw it. I didn't read it. Post-pandemic literature. Yeah. He's basically (laughs) making the opposite argument that, like, we shouldn't (laughs) say that social message stuff is corny and bad. But, you know, we can disagree about this. I think that when things are too didactically social justice oriented in literature, it ends up being bad. And it certainly applies to children's books. Um, Yeah. That's my final point. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, my our approach is I don't know if we're gonna do a parenting podcast now, but <laughs> Tammy, Please this is like God, the basket, no. this is like the basketball conversation. <laughs> no. This is much worse. <laughs> You're left out. Uh, we just dads get are, us- the dads are talking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dad, dad pod. Um, yeah, like we just try to get books that have Asians, not that are like mm-hmm. and are just like in Asia, but are not like. Like, like, Rick, so like Ricky Kiki Tembo. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 like yeah. <laughs> I went back and I read that book to try and figure out if it was racist, you know, because it has I, to be. It sounds, I was just has, has the kanji has the kanji font for one thing. I, know, I was just laughing because I thought it'd be <laughs> oh funny God. if I did like a, something on Twitter where I just like broke down whether or not Ricky <laughs> was racist. And you know what? It's not that racist. Yeah, I'm sure it's full of respect. Oh, and yeah, it's fine. I mean, I don't know if it's true that you, back in the day that uh, the first son in China would have a really long name like Ricky Tiki Tempo, No Sar Rambo, But you know, I was willing to suspend disbelief there. I'm like, sure. <laughs> that does seem really annoying if one of them falls into a well, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah. how It's <laughs> <laughs> um, pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I haven't, yeah, I haven't read that in a while. Yeah, we don't have that one. Not because of, uh, you know, not because we've banned it, but we just haven't gotten around to it. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so once again, you know, it's like a weighing of two different, two yeah. different impulses. The first is like, look, you shouldn't just read white supremacist children's literature <laughs> or like, you know, imperialist children's literature, but I don't know, the alternative to just sort of saturate the kids with this stuff. I don't know. It just seems so boring. I mean, Man, it's my kid's of... personality. She just doesn't like those books either. She she generally just likes, she just likes Catstronauts <laughs> and Tintin. Those are two favorites. <laughs> I mean, maybe kind of... does I like Urso and Haymarket sell yeah, like, Marxist children's literature? <laughs> I have an illustrated version of the Communist Manifesto. I could... I could I could read that to Mika next time. I've seen that, yeah. Maybe yeah. I should read that. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the class. Here's the other class. Um, <laughs> exactly. I mean, to bring it back to the where things started, I I have become become kind of reactionary about like reading the classics. I kind of feel like mm-hmm. if I were to take these classes again, I mean, you know, I was I was never taught these books in an SJW way, but you know, like if I read Homer, I want to read Homer, and I want to read what like <clears throat> old white guy in the fifties said about Homer. Um, <laughs> And so you're just, against the new translations by women. I mean, Andy's like only exactly, translations exactly. by men. <laughs> exactly. yeah, yeah. Only people from Oxford. Uh, I, <laughs> I just feel like it goes back to like form and content. It's I mean, which isn't to say like children's books can never be, you know, diverse. But just like if you're reading something from five thousand years ago from a terrible society, maybe you could. You don't have to like. There's it, almost something a little like weirdly whitewashing, or I don't know what the word is, uh, to 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 try to turn to something that it isn't. If that makes sense. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I feel like good literature 
has all that shit in it. And it's just about drawing it out in appropriate ways. So if we're going to fetishize the classics and, you know, because we have, we want to get to X destination. So our reading is entirely like teleological and like opportunistic. That's like, to me, that's just like bad lit crit. That's bad study. But like all that stuff, I, you know, there's a reason that stuff is so good. And and, and translation reads across So like when we were in college, would you read like Jane Austen and be like, these people are so racist. They're colonizing India right now. Or would you be like, (laughs) this is a good story. Because I think I would be, I would have been the first camp in college. I would have been like these racist English people. I think probably more of the latter. I'm older. So I don't, and I went to like a big, I went to a tiny liberal arts college in Maine. And so I don't think I. I just wasn't exposed to very much of that stuff. I don't think outside of this Joyce class, which apparently red pilled me forever. <laughs> I was going to say, this is like reactionary lit crit pod. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What have I, um, you know, like those, those emails from pers- those letters from professors that go out against like cancel culture and, you know, about yeah. intellectual diversity. There's w- one of the people who signs every single one of them is like a, my old government professor. From no way. <laughs> yeah, she signs all of them. Do you, do you, is that surprising to you or is that like a new No, she, she's like a neocon, so it's not surprising <laughs> to me at all. Wow. But, um, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, should we do what? You know, I think that's good enough. Um, yeah. The, the last question is, this? how would we do our own diversity statement? I don't oh, know. Oh, yeah. So if this is from Amy pro- Jean. Um, let's, let's do one more. Mm. This is from Amy Zhang and she writes as a Chinese American grad student, I would love to hear if you have some best practices for diversity statements or how to negotiate representing your experience in response to prompts that seem to assume other kinds of experience. Frankly, I feel like I've flubbed every one of these I've ever written, even though it's, I know it's a challenging genre with shifting conventions and expectations. I feel there's a real conceptual poverty in my responses. I've never, I've been uneasy writing these two existing models, which compel me to pretend at either being a benevolent white person or a more seriously marginalized scholar. Is there any way to construct a diversity statement sincerely without appearing too sly or uncooperative? That's a great question. I'm sorry, what is a diversity statement? When you apply to jobs, especially in the academy, you have you have to write a diversity statement. And what is the prompt? Especially in the UC system. That's what have you done in your life and career to promote diversity? Oh, this is the thing you had to fill out. And what would you do if given this job to promote diversity? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. When did this Apparently start? my diversity statement was bad because I didn't even get an interview for the job that I applied for at the UC, <laughs> the UC Journalism School. Because your answer was, I walk into a room. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I don't even remember what I wrote, but... I walk you know, into the room. I change the world. Oh, well, I, mean, I think the, under, the sort of <laughs> undercurrent of this of this question is, is something that we should talk about, which is, um, you know, like you have to choose a mode basically, right? And you can either choose I'm a privileged person and you know I'm white, or you can choose I am a immigrant minority who's oppressed, right? And both both answers are woke in some ways, right? Is that true? Right? You either acknowledge your privilege as like a you know East Asian, fair skinned, et cetera, et cetera. I am not fair skinned, <laughs> but Andy is, you know. We're gonna do no. <laughs> Tammy somewhere in the middle. <laughs> All right. I'm definitely the darkest. And then uh okay, so do you do you do you do you acknowledge your pre- do you acknowledge your privilege in that sort of way and basically just write as like a white person? Or do you write as a oppressed minority? 
I think that's so an do, interesting question. So do they, like when you guys get, when you get that prompt, do you know for sure it's not about class or some other kind of geographic or some like geographic diversity or some other sort? They say diversity. And okay. uh, so, I, mean, I think, I think you, you could go to the class angle for sure. Yeah. Um, so I don't do the privilege. I don't talk about my own privilege, but I do think I can't talk about being Asian. Like I don't, I don't do, I don't do what you can't talk about. Wait, say more, Andy. I can't, I can't use being the fact that I'm Asian as proof that I'm diverse. Uh, I think that's, I think, I think this is like. So what do you bring to the table then? I know, right? I talk about like stuff I I did. This podcast where I spat out various red pill theories. (laughs) I talk about my desire to only read translations of of Aeschylus and and Catullus done by white men. By white dudes. Andy's like, I bring a reactionary diversity. I know, right? Yeah, exactly. 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 Too much, too much, yeah, too much liberalism. A lot of people are saying, I wish that a woman would translate Catullus, but I'm here to tell you that I actually <laughs> hope that no woman ever translates. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, uh, I did. So I did Urban Debate League in New York for a bit. So I talk about that, you know, and that's like uh, the UDL, non-Asian yeah. groups. What and is that? You were like so, a mentor to brown and black debaters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Is that yeah, what yeah, I okay. coach. But it was also like my first exposure to like, um, yeah, like really crumbling New York City public high schools that are different than my suburban Washington State High School, and uh, I do talk about like that, you know, that affected me, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I, I guess the equivalent of Asian privilege uh, is I don't talk about like the fact that I am Asian proves mm-hmm. that I'm diverse. I think I don't think you can get also, away with that. But I also you don't, don't think, think you can get away with that. I don't think it counts. But I also don't think it really matters um, in the jobs I've applied for, which are academic ones where people are going to. Um, they're probably not going to use them. I think. I think a lot. Of the, the other issue with a lot of these is these are bureaucratically mandated, but the people making the decisions oftentimes are professors, who themselves may not place that much value on it. Oh, I think they do now. Yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe they do. I don't know. My impression was always no one's ever asked me about mine. The question is, what do they want to hear? You know, like yeah. I, I just couldn't figure out when I was writing mine, where it's just and like this is the extension of this is that a lot of jobs are going to start requiring this soon, yeah, or they already do. So it's not just an academic question, and I don't, I never know what to say. You I know? think, I mean, yeah, I think for you guys, for doing a journalism school, it would be a lot more like how can you help people get into the industry, which is much more pragmatic than an academic job, which is just like you know more about like how are your ideas and your research and which is like very yeah you, know, you you guys would be like what experience do you have mentoring is asking about all that stuff a kind of replacement is it a post affirmative action ban type yeah thing? yeah okay. it's a reaction so, to prop to um the ban on affirmative action in the ucs i think right so it's like a way to basically say i am x without them having to ask you what that's you the other are. thing yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and that's the yeah. criticism is that people are just using it to basically tease out what are you. Right. Yeah. So like yeah. if you say I'm like, you know, trans, you know, Cambodian, it's, a, you know, like, no, I'm serious. Like they'll count both of those, right? Yeah. If you I'm put sure. it in your diversity statement. The And the other thing is that like the actual ask that you're doing seems very small, you know? Like you're saying at this extremely elite institution and <laughs> we need to have two more people of color, like two more people who didn't go to Princeton, you know, um, the actual solutions that you should be spending a lot of your time promoting are things that are completely outside of that world anyway, 
you know? And so like at the point where your entire activism is focused on getting two people jobs at prestige institutions, you're basically just trying to, you know, I don't know, you can even make like a Foucauldian argument or, and say that like, you've basically, you know, you've like moved the power. I don't know. Like yeah, uh, yeah. it's been a while, you know, but like you've, you've, <laughs> you've produced a new form of power. Yeah. You shifted. Yeah, exactly. 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 <laughs> <laughs> our, uh, our academic <laughs> listeners will love that. <laughs> Stroking their chins. Like, yes, yeah, yes. exactly. He really understands. Foucault. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. I think that's enough. Um, Thank you for listening to our show. Um, Thank you to Joanne for coming on. Um, That was a much needed moment to get some context into what people are suffering with. And, you know, um, I hope that it balances out some of my frustration over stupid culture war stuff. Um, (laughs) If you want to keep listening, uh, keep sending us emails, please. Uh, It is time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or TTSG pod on Twitter. You can DM us. We see all the DMs and we'll try and answer them all. Um, yeah. I don't know what we're going to do for the holidays, but we'll probably be back. I don't know. We'll put this out sometime after Christmas and then we'll be back for the new year. Um, hopefully, I don't know. Maybe we'll do like a retrospective of 2020 or something like that. Although it sounds kind of lame. <laughs> Time to